Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Good morning, everyone. Tom Keen, Bloomberg Surveillance. Thrilled you're with us worldwide, coast to coast. Boston, Washington, San Francisco, early morning there. And in beautiful New York, just a sort of a foggy uh, day here in New York. Barry Ritholtz with me this morning. He was so good. What was it, two days ago, Barry? It Tuesday. Like, it seems like it a just, lifetime just ago. a lifetime ago. He's written like six essays for Bloomberg <laughs> View uh, since then. Caused the high-yield debacle yesterday. Apologies. Came back. We'll talk to Barry Riddles about the, uh, how you should respond when you see the new volatility. We've got a guest to lead this hour off who's expert in the perspective of what to do uh, when there's um, when there is uh, a, a renewed volatility. Um, our guest this morning to get us started is Kathy Fisher. She's with A.B. Bernstein, providing wisdom and counsel in wealth management. Barry, why don't you bring in Kathy? Because I've beaten her to death on television, on volatility, high yield, and the rest. I think sure. you could do better, Barry. Sure, absolutely. So I, I've been hearing now for five years, gee, we better get out of U.S. equities because there's so much complacency as evidenced by this low VIX. And yet... Every year, the market, since the bear market lows in 2009, has grinded higher and volatility has continued to go lower. So two questions. A, is this a flashing red light, everybody out of the pool? And B, if not, why have we seen volatility come down as much as it has? So on the flashing red light, I would say absolutely not. Um, the you know the market has gone up as we all know incredibly calmly for the past several years. Um, this tiny pickup in volatility we've had recently is quite modest, and um, and I really think reflects just the fact that people are looking for bad news wherever they can, mm-hmm. and whatever small signs we see, you see a little bit of a market reaction. But when we look broadly, um, all the things we've been talking about for a while, i.e., you know, good, good, not exciting, but good growth around the world, no part of the ma- no major economies in recession, earnings continuing to plow ahead at very respectable rates. E- even better than respectable earnings have been outstanding, haven't they? Especially overseas. Um, mm-hmm. And that's why this question... And Walmart that he- shows that with a 4%. Yeah. Overseas number. Yeah. And I mean, I think when you look at um, the, the, the whole angle about why uh, diversifying outside the U.S. is so powerful is that the non-U.S. markets are younger in their recovery, younger in their perhaps uh, shareholder focus, particularly in places like Japan, but even Europe. And therefore, you know, I think a little more momentum there in, in the potential trends in earnings growth and therefore stock price appreciation. So, so let's stay with the U.S. versus overseas. Um, question. When we look at long periods of time, it seems like market leadership goes back and forth. Domestic does really well for a couple of years while overseas are soft. And then that reverses. Overseas catch up and domestic sort of lags. Is, is that a fair description? And and what does that mean for a diversified portfolio? That is a fair description. And obviously part of it has been currency. 
mm-hmm. um, and and oftentimes the uh, the falling dollar means that you want to have non-U.S. stocks because when translated back to dollars, of course, they're worth more. Um, so the currency can have an impact. But more in this cycle in particular, if you look at the returns of non-U.S. stocks x the dollar impact, they are still better, and therefore we do think that's much yeah. more due to the fundamentals, not just the currency moves. Uh, Walmart out to a record high, a true record high through to through uh, the peak that we saw in 2014. They were all going to die and go away, and they're doing better than good right now. Um, Kathy, what people don't know about you is you were in the trenches of acquisition and M&A for years at J.P. Morgan. It's not just wealth management that you've done. Define for our audience accretive and dilutive. Emerson, first line of their new effort to go after Rockwell. We've got to get Rockwell automation. It's an accretive deal. What does that exactly mean? It means that after all the acquisition costs are factored in, the company does expect that the opportunity from the acquisition will indeed add to their earnings per share growth going forward, as it should. You shouldn't do a deal unless it is. But obviously, in many cases, deals can be temporarily dilutive to earnings per share if the acquisition's costs are high and the premium paid is high yeah. for the acquired company. Does that calculation have the same mystery of plugins as guessing? our federal budget deficit or that? I mean, when when the deal makers like you are sitting down with company A, they're all ready to buy B, let's go, let's go, let's go. Are the plugins a mystery one year out, three years out? Five years out? They are a mystery, but nowhere near as much as mysterious as the debt, obviously, mm-hmm. because the biggest the biggest opportunity is usually in cost synergies, and those are fairly straightforward. Revenue synergies are often harder to determine, but on the yeah. cost side, usually it's pretty clear cut. And what's interesting to me about the revenue – I hate this phrase, revenue synergies. They, John Tucker, they are a great band. They did Emerson, Lake, and Palm. Oh, <laughs> no yeah. One. Back in the 60s. Revenue sure. synergies. Revenue Cover synergies. Band. Yeah, they did. Revenue synergies? So revenue synergies often reflect the opportunity to cross-sell to existing customers or to lever a a product or a service in a way that can be enhanced by the combination. That's what GE wanted to do, Yeah, so, so, you know, every every business is different. It depends. So that's why they're harder to estimate because they are um, a little bit on the come and and therefore, uh, you know, very – people look at them with more skepticism than they do the cost control numbers. Are we in a bull market? Are we, we are. You know, I would is, argue we're in a. We're going to be in probably the longest recovery for both the economy and the markets we've probably ever seen in modern history, um, because and I and I think it makes sense given how tepid the economic recovery has been, that it has longer to go. And the, the way companies are adapting to change also gives earnings longer to mm-hmm. go as well, and therefore stock prices. So if this is a long, slow recovery, what does it tell us about what this secular cycle might look at look like? 82 to 2000, hey, that was almost two decades. You can, you can date this market to 2013 where everybody broke out to new highs. Are we looking potentially at another 10 plus years from here? It's hard, hard to know the time, but I think that, I think you're hitting on something really important, which is that embedded in this cycle is a radical technological transformation, right? We're all talking about the recovery from 08, and we're talking about geography, but, but really more important is the 
opportunity for companies in every industry to transform their business with technology. And that will have a many long, long time to go. And how companies adapt is going to be quite are, interesting. Are we talking business intelligence? Are we talking hardware? What What is the focus of, of technology across you're describing across every field. All of the above, right? Because just think of what um, what people can do now with any kind of handheld device for efficiencies, but then mm-hmm. bringing in artificial intelligence, machine learning, all the things that we know are possible right. and can indeed enhance efficiency across the board. There's, there's going to be lots of change as yeah. companies figure out what's right for them. Kathy, thank you so much. Kathy Fisher with a beautiful premiere, particularly valuable in today's calm. Futures up eight, Dow Futures up 57 after uh, some of the uproar uh, that we saw yesterday. Barry, I really did try to do Barry Ritholtz 101 yesterday in that, you know, the markets were moving and it was OMG, this, that, and the other thing. And yet in perspective, there was no breakage of support across any number of assets. It was just uh, somewhat normal, as Kathy said earlier, somewhat normal volatility. You know, we're so used to a 100-point day on the Dow being a big deal. What we were down down yesterday, almost 150, 140, and and it's barely half a percent move. Right. So you can't think of these market moves from your context of... Dow 10,000, it's well, it's 25,000, almost. A lot to talk about with Barry Ritholtz. We'll continue and do that. Greg Vallier just publishes with Horizon Investments. It's a simple headline. The tax bill is in trouble. We'll do much more on that through the morning as well. Every state is different. We have the advantage with Libby Cantrell of PIMCO that she understands in her Colorado, the Democrats have been ascendant since time began, but they've never really done it. Colorado's election to election, always a fractious state. You really never know what's going to happen. You don't know. It's, no, you don't. It's purple. It's purple. It's, it's like a yeah. true purple. But it's good. It's actually because then, <clears throat> then folks who are sent to Washington actually are incentivized yeah. to compromise. What does it mean within your policy area in Washington that it's a senior senator from Wisconsin? Because Wisconsin is sort of, to me, almost like Georgia or Virginia. It's a nuts Every election there is a yeah. battle. Yeah. It's it, all 5248 stuff. Yeah. It's actually a little bit like Colorado, um, different dynamics, but um, it, but but similar in that it's it's sort of unpredictable. Um, so, so Senator Johnson actually has been expressing concern about the small business issue, about this pass-through rate issue, actually for several months. Yes. Uh, and even a couple of weeks ago basically said this was going to be his red line. I think that um, the fact that he so vociferously came out against it yesterday, I mean, today he's walking back a little well, bit saying, that he wants to get to yes, but as we know, any fundamental changes to the Senate bill might violate the Bird Rule and um, might not yeah. be able to be passed. I've given up calling this tax reform. Do you disagree with me? Isn't it just blatant tax cuts? It's it's uh, so we've actually been sort of saying from the very beginning this is probably going to be tax reform light at best, and I think that's what you're getting. You're getting kind of tax cuts with a little bit of reform, so they can call it reform, but effectively this is a pretty big corporate tax cut with some individual tax relief that obviously will expire uh, in 2025 so, if the Senate has anything to do with it. So let me push back on the this isn't tax reform just just please, to please. just to argue the other side. Okay. So changes to the mortgage interest deduction have been floated and and negotiated. This LLC pass through is a big deal especially after the NFIB 
NFIB initially came out and said, hey, this exempts too many small businesses. We can't support it. Accelerated depreciation of capital spending is a huge change. That's a mm. very, very significant change. Um, and there are other things in this tax code, certainly getting rid of the estate tax, that are deep philosophical shifts mm -hmm. from how the tax code uh, was previously. It, are, are those fair Fair statements? Yeah, I think those are all, um, you know, some elements of reform. However, if you really had true fundamental tax reform, this would be revenue neutral, right? right. I mean, this would not be adding anything to the deficit. And clearly, what's a trillion and a, a half dollars? A, a, yeah, what's a, what's a trillion and a half Between dollars? Um, no, so so sure, yeah. Does this maybe move, maybe a step in that direction, well, possibly? <clears throat> but this is not the sort of the big comprehensive okay. once in a generation. And, and tax this reform. is the Liberty Cantrell wheelhouse. Have you had a recent or new calculation of what that deficit ad will be like in the last 12 hours? Yeah. So, um, you know, this will, will – it's obviously changing. Um, th there is – so our view is, is this will probably add around a trillion dollars to the deficit over 10 years. Um, the, the score is $1.5 trillion. There's a baseline issue. This is getting very wonky between the current policy and current law baseline. So basically that one and a half that's being scored includes our tax breaks that are, that are already in the economy that are, have already been factored in. Um, so about a trillion dollars over over 10 years. Um, but, you know, this the, the, we're still, you know, relatively early in terms of, I mean, kind of the fifth, sixth inning of a nine inning game here. Um, there is still quite a long way to go. And I think Senator John Johnson's opposition just shows that um, this thing is not fully baked yet, and we may not, um, you know, we may not see anything. I think that that, that there, there there is a potential for that, even though there is extreme political will to get something done. So explain the thought process to me behind throwing a, a live bomb in the middle of this in terms of the repeal of the Obamacare mandate. I yeah. know that generates a little bit of revenue, but why would you want to? wave a red flag in front of all of the pro-ACA right. people uh, on a political fight you just had and lost three times. That makes no sense to right. me. It's a, it's a great point, and it's one of the reasons why um, you know I think we thought that it would not be included. However, there's a real revenue issue here. Um, it's It raises $300 billion. Yeah. And <clears throat> um, because they're going to be using something called reconciliation, which allows bills to be passed with 50 votes, not 60, they have to comply with what's called the Bird Rule. The Bird Rule requires that, that the bill does not add to the deficit in year 11 and beyond. So will the, it just the, sunset the, it like the Bush cuts? Well, no, but so, so the Senate bill before the Obamacare repeal, um, before the individual mandate repeal, uh, did okay. add to the deficit in that year, so would would not have complied okay. reconciliation. Now it does. Okay, you so guys it's are a on, revenue. It's a whole okay. re, it's a revenue. You guys are on that side of the studio doing a walk <laughs> fest. Tucker and I are over here going, it's Libby, important. we'll get back it's to important. you. Wait, wait, just Libby. <laughs> Are my taxes going up? And the answer is yes. yes. Yeah, well, right? for you and for me, yes, they absolutely are. If you're Thank in New you. York or New well, Jersey not for or California. My taxes aren't going up. My taxes are going down because I own an Pass LLC. Through. Right, sure. And to me, this is just an enormous giveaway. gift. Right, yeah. it's a total giveaway. Yeah. Uh, that's should we why just get our wallets out now and hand them to No, we should, go to our, it over. we should go we'll to our accountants and say, We're, make us into pass-through entities. Well, that's the risk. Is, isn't yes. that the risk with yes. this LLC pass-through that companies that are legitimately established as partnerships or limited liability companies – 
You're now going to invite every other small business to becoming an LLC? Yes, and you're going to be inviting anybody who's in New York and New Jersey and Connecticut okay. and California <clears throat> who's seen their salt so, repeal. Um, so, okay, so let sure, me do, that, Mary, wait, wait, wait. we got to do a billboard here. we got to do a, a message from our uh, wonderful sponsors. Uh, Bloomberg Surveillance with Libby Cantrell this morning. It's brought to you by those who will make you an LLC. We thank Cone Resnick and Eisner Amper. What's that number? <laughs> for their support, dial 1-800-RITHOLTS if you want to be an LLC. And we thank Eisner Amper. We thank Cone Resnick. So Sorry. let me ask you this other question about what has just come up from some of the secretaries yeah. of defense who are concerned that this huge deficit and, and a trillion is fairly optimistic. Some of that's dynamically scored, but the numbers we've been looking at before is some anywhere from 50 to 100% higher. Is this potentially going to pull money away from the Defense Department? Yeah, I think that's what they're concerned about, right? So um, some former secretary, uh, secretaries of, the, of Defense came out overnight um, expressing opposition to this tax bill for fear that invariably Congress will be forced to cut, um, make you know pretty deep cuts to, to defense spending. Uh, and I think this is a really important development, especially as it relates to Senator McCain. You have to remember, first of all, the vote margin in the Senate is very narrow, right? So they can only lose two votes and still pass this bill uh, in this in the Senate, assuming no Democrats will support it. And Senator McCain voted against both 2001 and the 2003 Bush tax cuts for sort of similar reasons, right? He was concerned that this could have a deleterious impact on defense spending. And so I think this is a big development as it relates okay. to his vote, and but they can't what, afford to lose more votes. What does Ron Johnson and what he's the, the accountant from Wisconsin? How does Susan Collins, as one example, yeah. react to that? Yeah, I think she, well, she's already expressed some real concern about the individual yeah. mandate being included. And I get they haven't committed. I mean, I get they're No, and they're trying, right. I, I mean, this that. is the, this is the thing about, <clears throat> this is tricky because they're trying to go along, kind of to get along um, to a point, but then you force a vote on something yeah. that's politically risky <clears throat> and, you know, people are, members of Congress are politically expedient. They're well, not going to necessarily take a vote, especially in the Senate, that's going to harm their uh, re-election This abilities. is brilliant. Let's come back with Libby Cantrell of PIMCO with Barry Ritholtz. It's a really good discussion here. We're really getting into the, you know, the soup of it. It's What's the today's date? I didn't mention. 16th. The November 16th. So we're like getting there. I haven't even begun my Thanksgiving shopping. You know, I got to, I got to, I got to, you know. I got to go get the turnips out of the ground in the garden in Central Park and the designer bird. Yeah, no, no, we're not. We're not we're smoke. What are we doing we're, this we're, year? From Pimco, um, uh, <laughs> we'll come back and talk about this. We're having Pimco. A gentleman at Pimco recommended that I go to Greenberg's <gasps> of Tyler, Texas. Really, smoked oh. turkey. That's interesting. My turkey, we'll talk about this. My Thanksgiving planning is I buy tickets to Chicago and I just eat my way across the city. That's brilliant. Can I, can, I, can I come to the Riddle's house? It's, it's a 10-pound weekend. <clears throat> I just have to warn you. Okay. We're going to get to the Fed and the discussion of that with Mr. Levy, Dr. Levy, uh, with Berenberg Bank. But Mickey Levy, I've got to ask about 9.15 this morning, why did guys like you look at industrial production and capacity utilization if we're a service sector economy? Well, Tom, we, the U.S. Uh, does rely on services, but also relies on manufacturing and industrial production is is very important. We 
still produce a lot of things for domestic production and 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 consumption and and for export. So it's important. Now, I tend to put more weight on the industrial production numbers than the capacity utilization numbers. Um, I find the, the latter, um, um, the, the way they calculate, the way the Fed calculates them, yeah. um, I find a little questionable. Okay, let's go to our Fed changer that Barry was talking about. We're going to get Chairman Powell and all that. Uh, people have said that the concern of inflation has been overwrought and overdone. What's different now? How will uh, a conservative economist, how will the shadow economists uh, watching a more liberal, more dovish Fed, how will they react to the new Fed? Well, I don't I do not think the concern about inflation is is overstated. Um, we all benefit from uh, stable, low prices. Um, and, and I would emphasize that the reason why inflation has been so low is nominal GDP growth has been um, growing very, very slowly, so there's very little excess demand in the economy relative to productive capacity. Tom, stated differently, if the Fed's policies had actually stimulated growth as they were uh, uh, forecast to do, uh, we would have had a much bigger inflation problem. And the final point I would make about inflation is even though it's below the Fed's 2% long-run target, um, it's very, it, shouldn't, it is not a concern. And the recent declines in inflation so far this year have been favorable for the economy, not unfavorable. So let's stick with the inflation issue for a minute. I have, I have not quite a pushback, but two points to throw your way and, and get a response on. The first is we are still in a post-credit crisis recovery. Those, those tend to be primarily characterized by low growth, low inflation, and very uh, low wage pressure. So, so that's point one. Question one, how significant is this particular cycle to, to the low inflation question? And as part of that, we have seen almost no wage pressure for a decade. How significant is that to, to the inflation question? Gary, those are, those are very valid points. Um, but here we are now um, in the ninth year of economic expansion, and it's no longer recovery stage, um, and, and the economy's behaving uh, very normally, even though, as you point out, in, in, wages are low, despite the extremely low unemployment rate. And I think the, the low wages have a lot to do with the disappointing growth in uh, labor productivity. And in addition, um, we really have, a, 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 call it a challenge or a structural problem in the United States in that, unfortunately, we have tens of millions of, of semi-skilled workers who are, lo- who are working in low-productivity jobs, and, and, um, and their wages are not high or going up very much. So this is, this is way beyond the scope of monetary policy to correct. It needs to be addressed through other uh, policies like education policy and skills training. So, so I agree with you. I'd, I'd love to have um, 
accelerating wages here, and I'd like to see them being real wages to reflect improving productivity. But we just haven't had that. So mm-hmm. I agree with your assessment. The issue is how to address it. And my hunch, right. my read, is that the, the Fed over the last three or four years has extended the scope of monetary mm-hmm. policy to try to drive up wages, but it's just not the right policy well. tool. Let's leave it there. Mickey Levy, thank you so much with Berenberg Bank as we uh, see a new Fed uh, into the next year. We are thrilled to bring you now across all of Bloomberg Radio, and I might point out our Apple Podcasts as well. One of the great leaders of the art world. She's out of Harvard and, of course, the acclaimed Master's in Art program at Yale University. Brooke Lampy, Lampley has had a storied career uh, in art, including at Christie's, working in their evening sales division. Uh, she has risen uh, uh, very much so in the art world and will be vice chairman at Sotheby's uh, beginning of the year. And we're thrilled that Sotheby's has allowed uh us to speak with her today. Brooke, there's no other conversation, not an investment, but an art in the aesthetic than this Leonardo painting at $450 million. You told me today that you were not in the room last night at your former employer. Des- describe what's going on in the room as proxies bid, four people, five people bid by telephone. Is it like the movies? It's spectacular. It is. Um, There were four people on the phone, to my understanding, and one in the room. Um, The Christie's video is, um, and I'm familiar with both sides, of course, um, a bit limiting in that it's quite focused on the staff. So you can see the phone bidders quite clearly, but not the room bidder. But even if you were there, you probably couldn't, given the depth of space in the room and how many people Mm -hmm. there are. It's very difficult to see the room bidder unless you're close to them. What was fascinating about the bidding last night was the participation of an unusually determined bidder who not only was um, persistent in raising their bids, but would raise them at um, inflated bid increments. So particularly in the latter portion of the bidding between Mm -hmm. 300 and 400 million dollars where it was really between two bidders one on the phone with francois de porter um, and the other one on the phone with alex rotter um you would see francois would always take the bid two million and the other bidder would usually go another eight million um so it would go from say 322 to 330 yeah, you toss Almost that around. Every time. You toss that around like you're in aisle number seven at Whole Foods. My colleague Barry Ritholtz wants to get in here, but I've got to ask the news question: Does Brooke Lampley know who those two bidders were? I don't, uh, and in all likelihood, if I were still at Christie's, um, I would have the same view probably that I do now. Um, I would have a good, I'd have an informed idea, um, but. Likely, that's very restricted mm-hmm. information. Yes, of course. Um, until maybe one person, until you know, hopefully um, the whole world would like to know who the buyer is yeah. and perhaps they'll confirm it. Um, but that's of their own initiative. Yeah. Hey, Brooke, Barry Ritholtz, I have so many questions for you. I'm going to keep it short and sweet. First, 
this is just a huge leap above the previous high price. something yeah. uh, it, it's more than double what does that tell you about the current state of the art market i think it's valedictory and appropriate in a sense that um, da vinci should be the highest value or highest ranking artist in the art world uh, there are only 16 roughly known paintings by the artist. Uh, they are all in public collections. Um, so this is the epitome of scarcity and brand name recognition. Um, these are the marquee qualities that drive the art market. So, so the f- it's fitting that this work should have triumphed in the way it did. But what's Uh, I think most important for everyone is we've been talking about the spectrum and potential number of buyers who would bid $100 million for a work of art, maybe even $200 million for a work of art. And now we have a completely new benchmark. So so the follow-up question is, we know that da Vinci's are exceedingly rare, but there were lots of questions raised about the provenance and the state of this and subsequent. I think the last time this went off at auction, it was 45 pounds, some yeah. silly, silly number. Uh, a lot of the work on this has been questionable. Tell us about the provenance of this piece. So this, everyone will have read uh, about the bil- Russian billionaire Dmitry Rubolyevov. Uh, who um, famously purchased a collection through Yves Bouvier, um, and there's been a lawsuit um, about how he was defrauded in um, commissions. So this this sale is a direct product of that situation. This is a work that after it was re-canonized as a da Vinci by the 2011 to 2012 National Gallery exhibition in London, mm-hmm. was sold privately to right. Dimitri um, for $127.5 million. Mm-hmm. Um, prior to that, it had been discovered by the old master dealer Robert Simon in 2005, who purchased it at, um, I believe, purchased it at an American... Um, smaller regional auction house right. sale um, for uh, I forget <clears throat> if it was it, it, very small. It's okay, amount. it was it was at Antiques Roadshow or somewhere out in the Midwest. Yeah. I'm kidding. Uh, Brooke Lampley, with us, Vice Chairman of Sotheby's, as we look at this historic 450 million dollar uh, auction uh, yesterday. Brooke, if I do my research on the Mona Lisa, which I've seen and was deeply moved by. Boy, does it have a providence. We know that it's on white poplar wood. We know that King Francis I of France bought it, and it sits in the Louvre. Can there be science now that really looks at this thing and in in, in certifies the authenticity of it? Is, is there forensic stuff that you expect to see in the next year or two on this important piece? I don't expect the status of its attribution to change. Uh, The fact that it was attributed to da Vinci so um, wholeheartedly in 2011-2012 by very reputable, you know, internationally renowned scholars um, is definitive. It would be very unlikely for that to be 
challenged um, in our lifetimes, I think, mm-hmm. for the scholarship okay. on this okay. artist to change so yeah. radically in the course of our lifetime. Um, it is quite um, an authoritative stance. I mean, for example, um, the there are other artists for whom scholarship is um, in question, and there aren't um, scholars who are internationally regarded, so it is impossible to make attributions mm-hmm. like this today. And Medigliani is a good example. Um, so it is quite a statement for um, the academic community to come forward and say, yes. this is a da Vinci. Um, and I don't think that's likely to change. There is a history associated with the painting. It is just that for a long time, it was perceived believed to be, this work was believed to be a copy of that known work as opposed to, in fact, the original. This has been a great briefing. Brooke Lampley, thank you so much with Sotheby's as we uh, look forward to, uh, I guess, Barry, you'd call it an alternative investment. Uh, For some people, for sure. For For most people, not so much. Barry Riddles, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.